Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Hello! With us all the way from Oak Ridge, Tennessee is Lee Younger. Man, as the teenagers say, I need to match Jed's energy, but I don't know if I can do it. I got I got pretty sweet energy going. That's what they say about Jed. <laughs> Most people when they see him, they say, yeah, pretty sweet energy. <laughs> Sweet, both in the, uh, he's a very pleasant man sense, and also in that uh, if you stand close enough, you can actually, some days you can actually smell the Mountain Dew coming off him. <laughs> Eau de Doulette. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I have the, uh, the Eau de Baja Blast. Just a, <laughs> just a little touch behind the ears. A lot of people don't realize it's, it's a mixture of Mountain Dew Baja Blast and actual nard. They really went to town with it. <laughs> That's right. You have to go. To, you you simply must go to the Taco Bell in Paris. <laughs> the foie gras Mexican pizza is really, really an experience. You know, you joke, but I I would definitely, definitely do that. I know. I know, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have an Ortolan burrito, please. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you have to hide several sins from God with that one. <laughs> I mean, maybe the most esoteric reference we've ever made less than two minutes into the uh, two minutes into the recording here. So with that, with that pre bit over, we do have a great show lined up. We have some of your awesome questions, but first we must declare a legalism emergency. Whoa. What? Now, normally on this show, when we declare a legalism emergency, it's we've, and we've declared many, it's, uh, it's some kind of new, insane achievement in legalism or we're trying to combat it in some way but uh you know it's not been going so well so we're gonna try leaning in um in the in the spirit of the kind of when the guy wants to talk to you about nfts you could try to explain like that's not a thing or you could just go oh so they're like beanie babies (laughs) because that's entertaining and might annoy him and he's not gonna listen anyway so that's about where we are with the legalists and uh, this we saw uh, a couple weeks ago on, on the Twitters from Twitter user at Josiah Hawthorne, which is really a strong name in every conceivable way. And he's referencing, apparently this is a joke that's been around for a while. He says, I forget who first made this joke. Christian A, I take the Bible literally. Christian B, me too. I made my pilgrimage from Troas to Rome last year. <laughs> Christian A, what pilgrimage? Christian B. Where you bring bring a cloak and parchment. It's commanded in the Bible. Everyone in my church does it. And then a link to the verse from Romans where Paul says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so, that's very, very good. <laughs> what we took out of that is, you know, you have a person that says, Oh, well, this Bible verse says that. You, know, you, you, try, you could try to explain, and you, maybe you're a better person and have more energy than we do in these late years. But you could say, well, actually, the context of this is, is such and such, and that's really not as prescriptive in translations and culture and so far. Or you could say, yes, I also take the Bible literally. That's why I walk from Troas to Rome. Oh, you haven't done that? <laughs> I thought you said you take the Bible literally. And some people apparently just don't stand on the solid foundation of the Word anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea of, you know, somebody that's, uh, you know, a grumpy older gentleman in the church who thinks that people, you know, the kids don't take the Bible literally anymore. And, you know, and so he's, he's kind of, uh, got a bad attitude about, about the, uh, about the said youths. And you just ask the guy, so like, so how come when I came into the church, you didn't greet me with a holy kiss? Uh Oh, that's a command. It's a an absolute command. command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Yes. Um, one I like is, uh, and I, I quote again, an, a commanding statement from the Bible, from the really Bibly part of the Bible, Exodus Ooh. chapter three. Wow. Go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three day journey into the wilderness to offer our sacrifices to the Lord, our God. Now you may say, well, ha ha catch. There is no king of Egypt anymore. And I would put forth to you. Fouad II, a member of the (laughs) Egyptian Ali dynasty, formerly reigned as the last king of Egypt, 
and Sudan from July 1952 to June 1953. He, however, has a son, also flawed, currently living in Switzerland. So the commands of the Bible are clear. Yes, they are. Go to this man and say a really strange thing, and you better you better learn it in the Hebrew. Yes. That's what he said to say. <laughs> and I don't want to hear any of your thoughts about any marginalized groups of people until you've done that. Yeah. Well, in the spirit of combating the scourge of uh, cultural relativism, I have some instructions for the praise and worship team. I read from the holy and sacred scriptures. Um, we're we're going to jump around a bit, but um, but we'll start here with Psalm thirty-three, two. Praise the Lord with the harp. Oh. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Now, you may have a fog machine, very fancy. You may have guitars and drums, but do you have, sir, a ten-stringed lyre, which is an instrument that one can purchase in this day and age, or have you been swept up in the tide of cultural relativism? (laughs) I said good day. (laughs) Another thing I like about that is... You know, you could you know you could talk to you know uh, worship pastor Trent up there with his acoustic, and you could point out a like thrash metal band where the guy plays like a seven string guitar and the bass has six strings. Be like, this is closer. <laughs> this eight string guitar that's tuned to like triple drop D for some reason that is more biblically accurate than your piano based. There's no organs mentioned in the Bible. I'll tell you that much. No, doing a quick survey, we have harps, we have lyres, we have trumpets, we have ram's horns, uh, we have flutes, and we have tambourines. How's your flute and tambourine ensemble coming there, bud? You guys working on that, or are you just deciding that you're just going to, you know, just be uh, 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 capitulating to the whims of modernity? Is that is that what you're doing? I feel like for those of us who are around for the emergent church movements of kind of the early to mid two thousands, I'm I'm guessing there was a a flute and tambourine based worship band somewhere in like Portland, <laughs> I'm gonna say. Yeah. And for the briefest of moments, God was like, cool. That <laughs> was the only scripturally accurate worship band. In uh, there's a place in the book of Deuteronomy, oh, in chapter 22, that when you build a house, you have to make a battlement for your roof that you will not uh, be responsible for the blood of someone who falls off of your roof. What, yeah, is so, your home architecture in line? Yeah, what I want to know is when you go through the, the list of contractors. Online, you look at these websites, and some of the guys have the little fish letting you know, I'm the kind of contractor that believes in Jesus. Then it's like, well, then you better be building some battlements on the roof, my friend. Otherwise, <laughs> you're not that biblical. You know, as long as we're, we're talking about, you know, taking things in a direction. This is from Isaiah chapter 20. Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Yeah. You take it seriously or don't you? No, I I mean, I don't remember the last time I uh I took off the sackcloth in a biblical way. I can't actually ever remember having any sackcloth. Maybe I just don't believe that book as much as I've said I do. Feels like a lot of people just want to pick and choose nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> uh brother uh Johnson, I noticed that you uh, we're feeling ill. I noticed you taking some, some Pepto-Bismol instead of red wine mixed with water. Do you, do you not believe in the prescriptions of our holy uh, text there? Or is that that you just, you, you've, you've started to worship a false god of modern science? We've got some rich veins in the book of Revelation, one example being Revelation 10.9. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Do you eat scrolls at your church? Yes or no? Yes or no? 
And I go, oh, I mean, the scroll, it tastes terrible. Well, it sounds like that's because you lack faith. (laughs) It doesn't taste like honey yet. Maybe you should repent harder. (laughs) And as we're looking up more examples, I I just remind everyone, and I would invite you to take this on uh, to your own life. You can't have a rational argument with irrational people. So sometimes the best you can do is entertain yourself. Yeah. You know, that you can just be out in front building something of many cubits. And what are you doing? Be like, I just, I believe in the supremacy of the word, Jerry. I don't know about you. (laughs) I'm starting a petition for the United States military to trade in all their uh, arms for only horns. And they can like march around a thing and then blow the horn because that's how you do uh, biblical warfare. Oh, that's totally true. Yeah, that's totally true. And you know, I want to go all the way back. You know, there's been a lot of arguments through the years. You know, should should the pastor wear a robe? Should he have stoles? You know, do we need you know liturgical dress? Baby, I'm going all the way back to the ephod. Nobody knows what it looks like, but it's yeah. the biblical way to do it. And I will accept no substitute. <laughs> The beautiful thing about that is, like all biblical, quote-unquote, literalism, uh, you just get to decide whether or not other people are doing it right based on how you feel about it. <laughs> yeah. I think the only fishing advice that should be available to the world is cast your debts over the other side, because it worked that one time in that one a very specific instance. Therefore, everyone should do it all the time forever. That's certainly true. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, has caused a bit of controversy in kind of the, the mega church world, especially with kind of the prosperity gospel preachers, are their modes of transportation. You know, people who want to ride around in, in Bentleys, people who want to have private jets and, and private helicopters. But for ministers of the word, the Bible is very clear, Acts chapter 9, verse 25, but false, Paul's followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. If you, as a pastor, are not being transported in a basket, then you have adopted unbiblical <laughs> modes of transportation, and you need to repent. I will wow. also say, if you, as a pastor, decided to get lowered down into the pulpit, like from the the rafters in some kind of large basket, that's also a pretty powerful move. <laughs> like, just from a showmanship standpoint, that's pretty cool. You know, some people are really into this, uh, you know, the 23 and me thing where you can, you know, find out like, you know, what, like whatever it is, your, you know, kind of like your genealogical history of your family and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, the apostle Paul very clearly in the book of Titus chapter three says, avoid genealogies. Oh, so anybody sending off to the 23 and me, I guess you just don't care about the the Word of God. Ironically, that also means that your uh, Christmas service cannot uh, involve a reading from Matthew 1, because that is <laughs> sinful, yeah. somehow. It's in there. Even the parts that disagree with the other parts. Here's one that is, um, it, it still has all the snark, but there's, there's oh. more substance, which is delicious. Uh, coming from Philemon uh, chapter 1, the admonition, you cannot receive Philemon back as a slave, but as a beloved brother. In fact, you must receive him as you would receive me, the Apostle Paul. Meaning, if you're a Christian, you must receive all people as your beloved brother on an equal footing and standing mm-hmm. with the Apostle Paul. I don't yeah. care for that, for certain Entirely theologically sound reasons. Mm, I'm sure you don't. Well, you know, people talk a lot about how we've not based our, our that we should base our laws on on biblical things, which is, of course, entirely insane. But uh, it does bring up to to Judd's point about there, maybe uh, we should base our uh, immigration laws, for example, on the book of. Exodus, where it says, let the foreign-born be treated no different than your native. It's like right Hmm. there. It's just the biblical thing to do, Matt. I mean, I I think, I personally believe that we should base maybe just that one law on the Bible. A lot of others we really, really shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it, it is kind of a funny thing how much of our just how much of our society just falls apart when you look at certain verses like 
you know, in Hebrews 13, just the idea of like, just be content with what you have. It's nope. Like, uh, no. Pass. <laughs> well, another uh, wonderful thing about uh, some legal ca- cast, Exodus 12.49, the same law applies both to the native born and to the foreigner residing among you. Hmm. That seems, that seems pretty simple. Well, I, I have a final one here that I don't think anybody would really have any qualm with because, you know, a lot Hit of people... Me. Talk about, well, we got to do it the way Jesus and the early church was a big, you know, Acts 29, which is still the dumbest name for a thing that's ever happened. Uh, the book of Acts ended, and then for a long time, nothing happened. And then Mark Driscoll and Matt Chandler started a thing. So I'm going to pick it up right there. <laughs> but I'm going all the way back earlier to Acts chapter 2. Ooh. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That's good. All the weavers were together and had everything in common. Sweet. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Uh-oh. Well. Because <laughs> that's, like, pretty clear. Like, this is what they did, and that was good. And it's in the Bible, so can't wait for people to start doing that. With the same vigor, they pursue certain other isolated statements in the Bible. <laughs> Yeah, the thing about that is that I don't want to do that one. And now that we've reached the point in this bit where the subtext has become text, (laughs) it's time to declare (laughs) emergency off. Good call. Yes, it comes a moment to quote Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. (laughs) We're going to move on to your fine questions. If you have a question for us. I'll give you some ways you can touch the stand here, or you can scroll down into your episode description, click the links you find there. Our first question comes in and says, I know nobody perfectly lives out what they say, but what's the line between an imperfect person and a hypocrite? I think this is a very, very good question. And there's, there's a lot, it kind of actually ties in with the emergency in some ways of hypocrisy is one of those things that everybody loves to call out. Until it gets called out on them, in which case, well, there's nuance and, you know, uh, understanding and we got to do that. And uh, hypocrisy is also one of those things that, I don't know, in, in the current age we live in, accusations of hypocrisy kind of seem totally uh, uh, moot at this point after, you know, certain people have held certain offices and been like, oh, well, yeah, I didn't say that. We have any of you saying it. Yeah, nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> but it is still something that we we don't want to see in ourselves and we we should be wary of on some level to other in other people who are in certain positions but it is a fine line in some ways and Lee where do we start off with kind of navigating that it's a really interesting question based i mean especially based on kind of that emergencies segment that we just did and 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 the 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 direction that that whole that whole bit went into where we're all of a sudden, like you said, Matt, the, the subtext has just become text because the, the things that, that people know, like the things that people know Christians care about versus the things that are huge in the Bible, there's a giant chasm between those two things. And there shouldn't be, um, there's a, there's a really unfortunate history of people in in spiritual leadership who have positions of power and influence over people's lives who major on things that they care about or that they feel, you know, that, that, that they feel like they're an authority to speak about, but they don't care about things that, the, that are huge in the Lord's heart. I say all that to say that when you have someone in your life who is preaching at you, uh, someone who is leading a group of people, um, discipling or, or pastoring or whatever, that needs to be a person whose life you can trust that they, that they don't, they're not talking about some standard that they're not also living out. Now, of course, no one is perfect. Um, when you, you know, Matt, you were talking about how there can be this kind of thin line between like what is hypocrisy and what is kind of a normal acceptable amount of not everybody, you know, no one ha- has an exactly, you know, a completely and totally perfect life. One of the things I would say is every single person you meet 
the more you get to know them, the more you're at some point, you're probably going to find some character flaw or some defect, some place where they need where they need to grow, some place where they need to change, maybe something that is annoying or infuriating to you. But if somebody if if there's going to be somebody in my life where I'm going to have proximity and actual relationship where we are going to be close or where they are going to have some kind of influence over me like if we're going to be friends if we're going to be in a relationship or if you're going to be uh, in some kind of spiritual advisory or leadership role in my life i have to be able to trust that the things that you say to me are true that you're not going to manipulate me and that um that you're not going to take advantage of me there's a huge difference in a person having places where they need to grow um and being a person who has a wide margin between like the things that you say and the actual things that you do. Um, We can extend grace and love to people on all kinds of areas in their lives, but trust is something that is earned. We've talked about that a million times on this podcast, but despite the fact that nobody is perfect, it is it is appropriate for us to expect, especially in a place of like spiritual leadership, that we can trust our leaders. We can trust people that are preaching to us or teaching us that the things that they say are things that are actually true in their life, that they actually do care about. And for me, I want to choose to sit under a voice of somebody who's the things that they care about and value line up with the actual heart of God and with the testimony of scripture. Um, so look, nobody's perfect. Everybody has to grow at, at pretty much. Anybody is going to have things that, that, you know, at some place will may annoy you or infuriate you, but I should be able to trust that you're not going to manipulate or take advantage and that you are who you say you are. And that I can trust that what you care about is, are the things that also matter to God's heart. I think it's a great place to start that off. And, and Jed, what would we have to add about navigating those differences? Loved everything that Lee said. I, I think one of the challenges that we've got here is, in a sense, kind of a, a limitation in the English language because, you know, the, the conventional definition of a hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does another. And if we want to be super strict, that applies to every person alive today and every person who has ever lived. There, there's no one living who has a 100% match between the things they say and the things that they do um, that we're not going to find that. So what do we do with that? Well, I think we need some left and right limits to figure out how to navigate all of this. One thing that is important to add into the mixture is we live in a time when things are highly branded. And I think that that creates a very interesting relationship with truth and reality. Let me give you an example of what I mean. The Olive Garden restaurant would tell you that they serve Italian food. Nothing in Italy tastes like the food at the Olive Garden. <laughs> no. Now, and I, as an American, think Italy is worse for it. <laughs> they got so snippy when I asked for my fifth order of breadsticks. <laughs> it, now, it's actually kind of an interesting thought experiment because... Is this hypocrisy on the part of the Olive Garden? Well, not really. I mean, it's it's branding, right? Like, I mean, we all we all know what this is. It's it's an American restaurant that makes food that's inspired by the flavors of Italy. It is it is not authentic Italian food. They don't need to advertise themselves as the Olive Garden, not strictly speaking authentic, because that's that's a little weird and a little un, unwieldy, and we we kind of all know that. So in our culture, we kind of make allowances, which makes sense for, for branding, you know, for, for marketing, you know, the, the auto body shop that says simply the best. I mean, it's, that's an opinionative comment. It's not like conclusively provable that they, that they are the best. So we do need to keep that in mind. The second thing that we need to add in is that there's a huge, huge difference between someone who has a less than 100% match between their words and actions. Because again, that's literally everyone and a person or a situation where there is an intent to deceive and an mm. intent to misrepresent. The Olive Garden is not trying to deceive you. Um, they're just being uh, generous in the way that they describe themselves. We, we 
We all know what this is. And and if you went to them and, and you asked, is this a 100% authentic expression of Italian cuisine? They would say no. But I think the stuff that really gets us in trouble and, and the forms of hypocrisy that end up being really damaging are ones where there is an intent to say something other than what the reality is. There is an intent to deceive. There's an intent to misrepresent. There is an intent to create a perceived reality that does not match the actual reality. Like if you went to the Olive Garden and you had people there the whole time telling you this is super authentic, it's the most authentic food you'll ever have. Anyone who tells you otherwise is a liar. A, that would be super weird, but B, that would be bad. That would be very, very strange. I raise that really weird example because actually a lot of us have people who try to do that in our lives. A lot Mm -hmm. of us have people who are gaslighting all day, every day to try and convince us that things that are not true are true. And that, to me, I think that's where we really, really get into into trouble, right? So nobody's 100% the match between their words and their actions, and it's kind of up to you how much of that you're going to be cool with kind of depending on the situation. Your your mechanic says your car will be ready at 4. It's not ready till 4.05. Is that hypocrisy? No. Um, you're cool with five minutes. You may not be cool with 45 minutes. That's kind of a decision you have to make. Both are technically a disconnect between words and actions. But someone who is trying to misrepresent, who's trying to gaslight, who's trying to deceive you, that's something to be very aware of, very cautious of, and to steer clear of. Absolutely right. Um, normally, I, I try to button these these segments with a, a thought of my own, and I will do that in a minute. But first, I have to get two intrusive thoughts out of my head. The first is I desperately want uh, Tina Turner's Body Shop, simply the best. <laughs> yes. Um, the other is uh, I'm pitching this new slogan, the Olive Garden. Italian Parliament has officially declared us a hate group. <laughs> <laughs> There is also a weird run, if you remember these from, I think it was from like the late 90s, of Olive Garden commercials where the thing was like, you know, uh, Uncle Giuseppe came over from Naples and we took him to Olive Garden. Don't do that. Yeah, no. Please don't take an actual Italian person to Olive Garden. That, that will be, that will lead to uh, levels of angry hand gestures heretofore unseen <laughs> on Earth. But uh, to transfer that into a, a serious point on, to follow up on the great uh, things these guys gave you. Um, we do have to figure out how we're going to think about hypocrisy. Cause as I said, you get to kind of decide where that line is, but it, it has to my mind, it needs to be more than just not doing everything you say. Cause as we, we said, everybody, you know, uh, everybody does that to some extent. There are some other areas there, you know, does your doctor need to be a triathlete who, uh, has a perfect, uh, BMI to give you medical advice? Not necessarily. They could still be saying something that's right, even if they maybe not be the may not be the picture of of health themselves. That's there are things where there is just information being put out, and it is a a kind of a bad faith uh, arguing technique to to picket the bearer of uh, kind of as as much as there can be think objective information and point out that try to paint them as a hypocrite to undercut that. So we need to be, uh, you know, on the lookout for stuff like that. But one subsection of hypocrisy that I think is getting a lot more common, or maybe I'm just noticing it more, but it's not so much that I say a, and I do B, but it is, well, you need to do a, but if I do B, that's fine. Yeah. Because Mm. it's complicated or, in my position or kind of going back to the caste system thing that Jed was talking about when it comes to kind of church organizations in the, in the previous, um, in the, in the previous episode, there are some things where the idea of an in-group and an out-group is a kind of hypocrisy that I think is, is very pernicious that we may not always think of as hypocrisy kind of, um, you know, uh, what not to, not to over, over reference the, the SBC thing, but one of the, former SBC presidents who's been credibly accused of uh, sexual assault. Uh, one, he put out a big thing where his whole thing was trying to say, well, I made some bad decisions that negatively impacted my family. And here's, here's the thing, dude. If someone who disagreed with you, like politically 
had cheated on their wife or whatever you did, you claim you did, and that was a lesser version of what you're accused of, you would want them run out of town on rail because they're in the out group. But when you do it, it's, well, there's forgiveness and we have to understand and high pressure. And I was whatever. Mm, no, if it's, if it's good for a, if it's good for the, the, the non-specials, it needs to be good enough for you as well. But again, that is slightly different than another thing where this isn't necessarily okay. I view it differently. You don't have to, but there is something to be said for, I know people, including me, should probably think or behave or feel this way, but I don't right now. Maybe that's hypocrisy. To me, that's a little different level of hypocrisy than other stuff, but it's just in that mix of, yep, I think people should forgive. Also, I'm going to be super pissed at my parents or whoever for a little while longer because just not there yet. And I know that people should, you know, really, in theory, people should, you know, in, engage in good faith with people of different opinions. We should cry to the aisle. These people drive me crazy and I'm just about to lose my mind. To me, that there's a certain amount of hypocrisy there, sure. But to me, that's a little different. There's a difference that I would draw between. I agree that in general, doing it this way is a good idea. And I acknowledge that I'm not doing it that way. So I'm going to own up to that and you can make your assumption you want versus, well, other people should do it that way. But there's actually a real huge laundry list of reasons where I, it's actually good that I don't do it that way. So that's fine. Um, so and there's, that's another layer to when we think of things like hypocrisy, what are we looking for? What are we trying to figure out? What are we trying to identify as the problem? And I think it piggybacks on what these guys gave you very, very well. Now let's move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, when someone, for example, my family has hurt me, I put a lot of thought into trying to figure out why they acted the way they did. But I often find the answer doesn't satisfy me because they still did the hurtful thing. Is it useful to try to figure out the whys or better to focus on the whats? And I, I think this is another very, very cool question. A lot of interesting ways to take this. And Lee, where do we start off? It is a really sharp question, and I, it caused me to think a lot about um, just kind of situations that I've gone through myself, things about myself that I wanted to change versus uh, relationships in my life where I've established a, a boundary of, of disengagement. Um, and this is what I've come up with so far, and, and I hope this will be helpful. One thing that I've realized, and and your question actually made me realize this, is that motives behind certain actions can be very, very helpful and important from the perspective of the person who needs to change their behavior, from the perspective of the person who did the hurtful thing. That's a very, uh, like, figuring out the motive, that's a very uh, mature pursuit. It's an important pursuit. From the perspective of the person that was injured, much less important. And what I mean is... uh, if you have hurt me to the level where I need to draw a boundary of disengagement, like I'm not going to engage in this relationship right now, I don't want to, I don't need to hear why you did that or why you think you did that. I don't need to figure the whole thing out to, to, to put you into a better light. Um, a lot of times when somebody has hurt me to a level at which I need to establish a boundary to get some space from them or to get some space from that relationship, when they bring out the motives themselves, to me, that reads completely as defensiveness. Mm. That just comes in as, I am now justifying this thing so that you have, which makes you have a responsibility of, of feeling less injured. Uh, no, you, you stepped on my foot. My foot hurts. I don't need to know why it wasn't really your fault that you stepped on my foot or that you would never step on somebody's foot. Of course, I, you know me. You know that I would never step on anybody's foot. It's like, no, you you trod upon my foot. My foot hurts. I am not going to walk in this space with you right now. That's the way that goes. Now, from the perspective of the person that's done the 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 hurting, I think figuring out those motives is an important thing because, I mean – um, this is a, this is definitely a, a kind of a phase in like, um, recovery groups, 12 step. One of the biggest things that you need to understand is why do I do the things that I do? 
Um, wh- what is it that if I'm going to strategize and actually make a change in my life, I need to understand why I am doing this behavior, why I go to this place, why I cope in these ways, why I respond in this way, why I talk this way, why I think that way. Um, if I have a behavior I need to change, understanding my motives and why I did a thing really, really matters. If somebody's hurt me and I need to, and I need to close off that relationship or I need to get some distance, I'm not as interested in the motives, especially if you're going to use that in a defensive way. And by the way, if you're the person that's been injured, you don't owe it to them to uh, to create uh, you know a, a a solid forensic case for why they did what they did. You can just say I'm not comfortable engaging right now, and you can draw that boundary. And so I, that's been a helpful uh, paradigm for me to uh, with which I'm thinking about this in my own life. I hope that's a helpful way for you. I definitely definitely think that you should not feel a responsibility to. Um, to you know, set up for anybody that's hurt you, all the reasons why it made sense that they did the things that they did. That's an excellent and really important place to start off. And Jed, where would we take things from there? That's great stuff, man. In in the spirit of of the whys versus the whats, I think that either one of them can matter, but I think they matter for different reasons. Um, it's worth noting that in legal proceedings, why and what both matter. Um, you know, they can. <laughs> has some pretty significant impacts on on what a judge decides or what a jury decides. Um, but in your life, I think both can matter, but again, for, for different reasons. So let's look at an example, right? If, if someone's really hurt you, I think you deserve a few things. I think you deserve justice. I think you deserve safety. Uh, and I think that you deserve closure. But each of those things kind of have different requirements of how we're going to get there. So let's look at, at the second to it, safety and closure for a second, because they'll kind of illustrate the point to get closure. You don't really need to know what the why was like um, a lot of closure is going to be just shutting this person down so that, you know, they can't do it again in the future. That's far more focused on the what um, are there forms of emotional closure where why might be helpful possibly. Um, but in terms of, of immediate closure, just the, here's what they did and here are the boundaries I'm going to put in effect so that doesn't happen again. Um, that That's more a what thing. Safety, though, uh, is a bit more of a why question, right? Because you've been mistreated by this person and you don't want that to happen from them, but actually you don't want that to happen again from other people either. And so if we have a sense of kind of where this came from, then we're able to uh, know what to look out for with other relationships. We're able mm-hmm. to to know how to kind of um, have a, a preventative posture for the future, which is a good thing. And we do need to have a bit of a correct diagnosis or we'll put kind of the wrong structures in place. If you say, well, he has a beard and he stepped on my foot. Therefore, I'm going to be very careful about bearded people in the future. Uh, that, that won't help. That's that's, you know, it's correlation, but definitely not causation. Um, if what we find is this is a guy who's super clumsy and not looking where he's going and therefore stepped on my foot. Well, then, you know, being careful around people who are clumsy in the future, that that would make sense. So we've got safety. We've got closure. Both are good. You deserve both. But again, they they do have different requirements to link to the stuff that, that Lee was saying and, and really to, to encourage you be selfish. Mm-hmm. You've you've been hurt here. Figure out what you need. Figure out what's going to get you in a better place again. I think you deserve justice. Uh, I think you deserve safety. I think you deserve closure. Figure out what you need to get those things. I'm offering some guesses that that closure may have more about what and safety more, may more have about why, but figure out what works for you. Um, you I think one of the things that, that goes through your question is feeling like that even as you try and get some healing in your situation – you still have to do it in a way that's very protective of the person who hurt you. Um, and, and you don't, you, you, you don't have to do that. Um, and there may be a sense of like, if I understood why, then it would be like, it, it makes them less terrible. I think there's a lot of good reasons to know why that have nothing to do with softening the blow for them. Um, and the same thing with what, and actually there, there are, there are other questions that you could be looking at too, but it's a similar vibe of, 
answer these questions for you. Answer these questions to the extent that they're useful mm. for your healing process, for your safety and closure and justice. If some of those things wind up in a place where it makes it easier to figure out, okay, great. But start from a place of figuring out what you need in order to get healing and safety and closure and go from there. I think those are both excellent, excellent ways uh, to think about this. Um, if I could take you on a, a bit of a long walkabout, but I think it's going to be uh, helpful in contextualizing this. So uh, as people who listen to the show for a long time may know, I have a degree in history and very, very interested in it, read a lot of history and, and think about it. But one of the most interesting things I've ever heard that's helped me kind of think about in life, but this person fairly talking about historical events, was someone, I believe they were responding to like a question in a class about, you know, is do big historical things happen because all the the forces were pointing that way and it was kind of inevitable or because of big turning point moments and great men who, you know, kick things off. And uh, this guy's answer was that essentially it's always both. There's always a lot of big external long-term factors that are building up that are pointing in a direction, but the way the reason things go the way they go exactly is almost always because of uh, inflection points and it's specifically decisions that people made. Mm. One of the things that you could, I think you lose when you get too much into the, I wonder why they did that is I, I think sometimes we're trying to create a narrative in which they didn't make a decision. They were, uh, in a situation or they had been told these things or they had been raised this way and therefore this happened, which you point out in your question, I almost never find a satisfying answer. And I, I think part of the reason of that is that's always going to lack an analysis of there came a point where this person made a decision to do a thing, maybe made a bunch of decisions over many years to do things in the same way. But there's, there's, very rarely such a thing as circumstances that just forced someone's hand into being a passive uh, uh, passenger in their own situation. So we're always going to be left with this idea of, um, I was recently listening to this, uh, something as goofy as college football, but uh, it was actually about a, why a, a rich, very well-respected coach did a super stupid thing that ended up having long-term ramifications on his career. And everyone was trying to figure out, well, did he owe this guy a favor or why do you think he's just going with it? And uh, it was somebody made the point of whenever it's a super rich, influential person who does a thing, here's the answer why they did it because they wanted to, mm. they wanted to do a thing and there was nothing between them and the thing. And they did it. So, um, we can ask questions as Jed and Lee pointed out in, in interpersonal relationships, very helpful to ask questions of why did they want to do that? What did they think they were going to get out of doing that? But I think a helpful analysis, particularly when someone's made a hurtful decision or hurtful pattern of behavior is not, not shrinking from the fact that at some point there was a moment where they could have done this or something other than this. And they chose this. Yes. And there's very rarely going to be a 100% satisfactory answer for why they chose the thing they did. But they did it because they chose that thing. That can be a harsh thing. Um, but when someone has hurt you or has been in a, a pattern of hurtful behavior, when you draw a boundary, exactly back to where Lee started us, your job is not to forensically go through and be their defense attorney and yeah. figure out how to minimize that yeah. behavior to the point where you ha you can treat it like not that big a deal. And as these guys have given you a very a very healthy idea of mixing the whys and the hows, those whys really can be helpful and can build in some things as we analyze behavior, but the whys aren't about uh, minimizing what was done because what was done was a decision to do a thing. And we have to, I, th I think in order to get to healing, to get to what understanding we're going to get, that choice has to play a role in what we're thinking through. All right, we're going to move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, in Romans 9.1, Paul says, My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. How does our conscience relate to the Holy Spirit? I think that's a, a very cool question. It kind of goes back to some of the stuff we've been talking about with kind of the, the legalism and stuff. I think a lot of folks are raised in traditions of you can't trust your own intuition or consciousness, and you need this outside thing. So for that to come 
right from the mouth of Paul. I think it's a very, very interesting wrinkle to add to that. And Lee, where do we start off with this? It's a very cool question, and it's a, it's a good catch by our question asker to, you know, it, it, I think it can be easy, especially for folks who were raised in church and have seen a lot of stuff in the Bible, just to read over certain things and not investigate it, um, and and not take the time to to ask a really sharp question like this, like, wait, what's conscience, and what is the Holy Spirit, and what is the role there? There is a difference. I think ideally what we would have is a, a resonance between the voice of the Holy Spirit in my in my heart and mind and my own conscience. Real quick, um, I, you know, I think um, and this is kind of something that Matt was alluding to too. I think it's really easy for for folks who have been around church stuff for a while, especially if you've been in a specific kind of church culture, to feel like everything that you naturally think is horrible and bad because of the total depravity of man and all that kind of stuff. And every, every desire that you have is, is terrible and horrible. Um, and, um, and then you have to get saved to ever even want something good. Well, that's not true. Of course, every single person has a conscience and every single person also has bad desires, um, or desires for the wrong thing. Like I've got stuff that I want that would not be good for me. And I also have a, a sense of from God of like of right and wrong and what would be what would be a healthy thing what would be a helpful thing what would be a good thing what the bible says is and and everybody has those everybody has that same thing inside them of like there's there's stuff that I want that would not be good for me and I still you know want those things I still want to do those things or say those things and respond in these ways and I also know what would be good um what the bible says about the holy spirit is that when a person calls out in the name of the Lord, when a person comes to know Jesus, that the Spirit of God actually comes to live inside that person's heart. There's a place where the Apostle Paul calls the Holy Spirit a down payment of our inheritance. That our inheritance is that after we pass away, that we will be in paradise in the presence of God forever. Um, I'll always be with Him. I'll always enjoy the fellowship of that amazing relationship. And so Paul says, when you come to know Jesus, you get a down payment of that of that experience, which is the Spirit of God actually comes to live inside your heart. He actually makes a home inside you. So that now you have you have the Spirit of God talking to you. Um, Romans chapter 5 says, so what does he do and what does he talk to you about? Like Romans chapter 5 says, he's always pouring out the love of God into your heart. There's a place where Paul says, that the Holy Spirit helps you understand the scriptures, that he gives you wisdom, he gives you encouragement, he gives you comfort. I think one of the it's one of the coolest things about being a person that believes in Jesus is that the Spirit of Jesus literally will encourage you, um, will comfort you, will give you wisdom. The the trick for 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 all of us, I think, and definitely the thing that I want to learn and grow in is getting my getting the noise of my own thoughts and emotions and life quiet enough to have a resonance between that natural part of me that God has put inside me to know what would be good and healthy and helpful um, versus the thing that I want that would not be good. And having that parsing out those things and having it resonate with the voice of God who's literally telling me that, telling me that he loves me telling me that I'm his kid encouraging me and comforting me that would be the that would be the thing that we would want to aim at is getting a heart that's quiet enough to hear the encouragement and comfort of the holy spirit absolutely another fantastic uh place to kick it off there and jed where what would we add to that well, obviously, that's all great stuff. Let's, just as a thought experiment for a second, let's set God aside. I know that sounds weird, but let's let's leave God out of it for a second. And I just want to ask you a question. How well do you know yourself? Because I think that most people actually do not know themselves very, very well. And part of the reason why I suggest that is that there is an 
ancient aphorism, it, it fully predates certainly the New Testament, it comes from the Greeks, that simply says, know thyself. And the reason why that instruction has been given for thousands of years from really, really smart, very wise, very insightful people is that to know yourself is something you must work at. It is, it is a journey that you must go on, you must apply yourself to, and that the more that you know yourself, which includes knowing your values, knowing the things that you care about, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, um, the better decisions you can make, uh, the better uh, – better might be not the perfect word – a life that is more resonant and more joyful, the more of that life you can live, the more that you know yourself. And so I think one of the things that has happened, particularly for people who've, who've grown up around church stuff where there's a lot of guilt, is the extent of knowing themselves is, well, I know that I'm a worm who only wants bad things. That's not knowing yourself, man. Um, th- those are theological propositions that, that are worth thinking about, but that, that's not knowing yourself. Um, and we want to encourage you to, as a part of your life journey, to be on a journey where you are knowing yourself and where you have a sense of the things that you care about, the things that you want, the things that, that you dig, the things that, that you like. Now we're going to bring God back into the equation. One of the amazing things about Christianity is the idea that God wants to essentially be on a team with you that God wants to have his spirit live in your heart and that you guys would live a shared life together. And part of what Christians are called to do is to seek God's will for their lives and seek God's will for their decisions. But the thing that a lot of folks very strongly miss is that it's exceptionally difficult to submit your will to God's when you don't know what your will is. And it's exceptionally difficult to know what your will is when you don't know yourself. If you think you're basically just a worm who only wants bad things, and that's the extent of your self-knowledge, it's going to be real, real hard to know the things you care about and therefore have a dialogue with the Lord about what he would like to see happen. That's going to be really, really challenging. And so we want to work on two things. We want to work on self-knowledge. We want to work on know thyself. And we also want to... We want to work on learning to discern God's nudge and God's voice and God's call in our lives. I believe God does have a, a, a will for you. I think God does have a, a plan for you. It it may not be on every single thing all the time in the way that some people have described, but I think God definitely has um, a, a plan for you and a calling for you. But that is meant to work together and in concert with who you really are. And I can say that confidently because God created who you really are and God loves who you really are. God fashioned you into the real you on purpose. And in fact, um, uh, the call that he has on, on your life is meant to be resonant with that, the real you. And so when we're trying to figure big, important things out, when we've got a moment where I know myself and that suggests we should do course ABC, but I'm also seeking the still small voice of the Holy Spirit in prayer and in scripture and in talking with other believers, and that is also suggesting course ABC. When those two things are going in the same direction, man, you've really got something. You should you should go in the direction of course ABC. That's that's great. I think that's uh, certainly part of what Paul is is talking about here, and that's you know, we want to encourage you to do that. We want to encourage you to, to get to know the voice of the Holy Spirit, but get to know yourself as well and recognize that those two things are meant to go together. Absolutely right. I think that's incredibly well put uh, by both Jed and Lee there. Um, I think it is easy to get in that kind of, especially if you've been raised in a kind of very judgmental, maybe very legalistic um, Christianity tradition, the idea is fairly pernicious that the goal of Christianity is self-denial and is ego death or whatever. Um, but, you know, Matthew 16, 25 says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. There's a finding that is a very, very important part of that process. You're not just supposed to lose yourself and your sense of self. That is 
a good thing to have. You're supposed to let God come into that conversation and guide that and mold that. But, you know, we were, we started off in the emergency kind of talking about, you know, taking things uh, jokingly out of context. I do think one idea that Christians really strip of any context is Jesus in the garden saying, not my will, but yours be done. Um, and I, maybe it's the, maybe it's because that is a really good line and we, it's something to aspire to. Maybe it's because it's doing that thing where it is the most intense moment of kind of Jesus's life on earth. But uh, I think a lot of people really valorize that as the pinnacle of Christianity of, you know, denying myself and letting God work through me. And certainly that is a thing, but I think what is very extreme about that moment is uh, Jesus saying, I want to not do the thing you want me to do and you want me to do it. I want the opposite of what is I'm being asked to do here. I think that part is actually a lot rarer in our lives. Just totally. I want to run due West and God wants me to go due East. I think getting towards a happy balanced life that God wants for you with with joy and peace and all those things is probably lines up with things you want more than you're giving yourself credit for in a lot of instances. And you, you shouldn't be afraid to, to listen to that still small voice inside of yourself uh, when it is pointing in direction and let that be again, a part of the ongoing conversation that's happening there. All right. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, the bridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, we have a song this week. This is our friend Glenn Kaiser with his version of the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, a great tune. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. Nothing you can do about it.